Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Thomas Hatzis, psychedelic historian and author of several books on the use of entheogens throughout history. Tom and I discuss the importance of maintaining historical methodologies and integrity when writing psychedelic history. We talk about the use of entheogens in the ancient world and medieval period, especially their possible use in the Greek Eleusinian and Dionysian mysteries, and in the much maligned witches' ointment. We also discuss where the psychedelic movement is heading, and whether the psychedelic community can avoid the mistakes of the past. Thomas Hatzis is a historian of psychedelica, a public speaker, and author of The Witch's Ointment, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, and the recently published LSD, The Wonder Child, which explores the golden age of psychedelic research in the 1950s. Thomas co-runs Sanctum Psychedelia, a psychedelics education and harm reduction group, and is the curator of the Sanctum Psychedelic Library on sanctum.org. Tom, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks for having me, Nick. Pleasure to yeah. be here. Yeah, well, thank you for your time. Yeah, for sure. But pleasure to be here in my home. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so I, I have read both uh, LSD, The Wonder Child, and The Witch's Ointment. And based on those, I just purchased uh, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. Uh, I got it last night. Uh, so uh, I've only had the opportunity to skim it. Uh, but I just wanted to say I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Um, the two books I've read, I found both of them to be very well written. Uh, they were a joy to read. Uh, I really appreciate your style. Even The Witch's Ointment, that was a joy to read? It, it was. Um, uh, I, I think so that... It's dense yeah, and annoying, and there's all it, these weird terms. And, yeah, it, it was dense, but, um, you know... I've read a lot of history. Sure. So for me, it was uh, par for the course, you know, I, I'm kind of used to it. And um, you, you tried to make it so that it wasn't entirely dry. I, uh, and I succeeded with psychedelic mystery traditions. So yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll see there that there's right. a, I hopefully yeah. Yeah. I, I, I might be tooting my own horn a little too soon. You yeah, might be okay. garbage. Yeah. You know? yeah. No, I, I liked it. And um, I, I do want to speak about the witch's ointment book a little bit sure. later. Uh, but the other thing that I really appreciated was how both books are so well-sourced. Uh, as an academic, you know, that is so important, I think. Uh, and it adds a lot of credibility and legitimacy to these studies, which I think are necessary at our current moment. Uh, and I'll be a bit honest with you, though, here is that after reading these books, knowing that we were going to speak today, I sort of struggled as to where are we going to begin? Uh, you know, where to start this interview? So I thought maybe let's just start at the beginning. Uh, humans have been altering their consciousness and doing so for spiritual purposes and other reasons pretty much since the beginning, haven't we? I mean, it's hard to tell if it's the beginning because the beginning is so long ago, but certainly since the beginnings of civilization that, I mean, we have some very clear, you know, evidence of that, um, the uh, Tassili cave art, uh, for example, the famous, they call it a bee shaman, but we don't really know what it was. Uh, there's those uh, caves in Spain as well. There's also a cave um, 
uh, uh, what is it, Mount Bego, uh, I believe it's in southern France, that uh, the, the ethnobotanist Giorgio Samarini, an Italian fellow, uh, found a, um, a pictograph of an Amanita muscaria mushroom. And I'm one of those people that I'm very wary when people tell me that there are mushrooms in art, but this one, like you can't mistake it for anything. It's an Amanita muscaria mushroom. It's like, that's what it is. Um, unless somebody could tell me, you know, something better, I'm always open, you know, to, you know, I want to know what it is, but I can't think of a better, um, uh, um, to, you know, depiction of like what somebody carving an Amanita muscari into a cave wall would look like than this image in Mount Bego. Uh, there's also the uh, the poppy goddesses, the opium goddesses of uh, Menon Kriti that eventually became the rites of Eleusis. So, I mean, it's just all over the ancient. I mean, I could go on and on and on talking about stuff. And, yeah, yeah. You know, beginning of civilization, uh, you definitely right. see it. Yeah. Uh, do you know the uh, off the top of your head, the dating on the Mount Bego uh, artwork? Not off the top of my head. Uh, no, okay. I think if I my guess, if I'm uh, I shouldn't say it because I don't remember. My guess would be about five to six thousand uh, before the common era. OK, uh, so there was I mean, you had Greek civilization at this point, you know, sure. but it was still, you okay. know, different parts of the world, you know, different. You know, we we tend to think sometimes that like humanity, like socially evolved all at the same time. But it didn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, even right. to this day, there are still like bush tribes and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, parts of Australia, for example, you know, totally untouched by, uh, you know, modern life, uh, which is probably good in some ways and probably mm -hmm. not so much in others, you know. Right. Right. Like that probably don't have much by way of depression and anxiety, mm -hmm. but I enjoy toilet paper and, you know, <laughs> heating in the winter. So Right, right. For sure. For sure. So do you think that the Amanita muscaria mushroom is the substance, the, the first substance that we actually have evidence of um, that no. people were using or is there other no. evidence? No, there's other evidences. Yeah. I think that, um, the clearest you're going to get is either opium or cannabis because okay. we have archaeochemical uh, evidence for them. We have statues of them and we have writing of it. Um, mm -hmm. We also, um, the word itself, cannabis, comes from an Assyrian verb, kunabu, which means to smoke. Mm. So, okay. That's pretty old. <laughs> you know? Right, 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 for sure. So uh, I, I do actually want to touch on the uh, mystery traditions of Greece. Uh, but first, I thought it might be helpful to get clarity on some of the language. Sure. Uh, because I know that you do this in the psychedelic mystery traditions, at least part of what I skimmed, uh, is that you make a distinction between psychedelic and entheogen. Mm -hmm. And then you also have a list of a lot of other terms. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought maybe instead of going through that list, we could just discuss uh, how you're using psychedelic and entheogen. Sure. I use psychedelic specifically to mean mind manifesting, which is what it means. Uh, it's from two Greek words, suke, meaning uh, psyche or really soul in Greek, and uh, delin, which means to manifest or to bring forth, so psychedelic. Um, so that can include any kind of uh, person going to a festival and eating acid and just dancing and, you know, having a fun time. Um, it can include having a quiet night, you know, with your loved one and just having this, you know, uh, emotionally powerful journey with each other. Anything that expands the mind, mind manifests psychedelic. Now, entheogen, I use specifically, and I mean, it was invented specifically for the reason of using a psychedelic for a religious or spiritual practice. 
That's what entheogen means. So um, interestingly, the word psychedelic can include entheogenic practices, but the word entheogen does not necessarily include mind manifesting or psychedelic practices. If that's, you know, um, a little nitpicky, I'm sure for some people, but uh, that's what having a passion is like. (laughs) You get really nitpicky with this stuff. Right, right, right. And I think it's helpful to think about or to be clear in our terminology as we uh, explore um, uh, all these things. Sure. Um, well, the thing, the reason I do that, if I could just with psychedelic okay. mystery traditions on that book, I'm talking about like, I'm trying to take each one of these different kinds of experiences in history from the perspective of the person having it, not the perspective that we would try to throw on right, it. Right, right. Because of that, as you mentioned, I had to come up with this whole list of neologisms right. to define these experiences that don't necessarily fall into psychedelic or entheogenic, or at right. least it could fall into psychedelic, but if you want to get more specific so that it's not so broad. Right. Yeah. And I think we do have a tendency to project back in time our experiences and the oh, language yeah. that we use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know there's a lot of contested ideas um, against words like shamanism and things like that. So I can sure. see it applying to psychedelic studies as well. Yeah. And with shaman, I can actually like it's weird because I can see like there's the old cantankerous debate that you're talking about among scholars of, you know, like are shaman only the Sami people in Siberia or can it be applied to other places? Well, let's just take uh, medieval wise women that I write about in the witch's ointments. Mm. There are some aspects of their belief that are not shamanic at all. Um, or rather I should say there are some aspects of Siberian shamanism that are not found in these European, Western European beliefs. But there are other aspects of Siberian shamanism that are found in their belief system. So it's just one example, something found in Siberian shamanism for which we have is no trace in Western European, you know, witch trial records is animism. Mm. That's nowhere found in the records. However, a Siberian shamans also, I mean, the, the, the main thrust of their practice is entering the spirit world, eating the Amanita muscaria mushroom, entering the spirit world and taking information from that spirit world back to this realm to heal their communities, heal, you know, the animals, the livestock, the people, sick children. Well, when you look at what these medieval wise women, they were doing the same thing. They weren't using Amanita muscaria from what we could tell. They were using opium and henbane and mandrake and belladonna. But it's the same thing. They were entering the spirit world to meet with a goddess, to receive information from her, to bring back to heal their communities. Incidentally, Maria Sabina, the Oaxacan uh, medicine curandera, I should say, that uh, famously, you know, you know, we're all talking about psilocybin mushrooms essentially because of this woman. She did the same thing. She ate psilocybin mushrooms and went into what she called the world where everything is known and would bring back, uh, you know, um, cures for her clients that, you know, would come to her with a sickness. So in, we have three completely different parts of the world. You have um, uh, Central America, you have Western Europe and you have Siberia. And, but they still have the same going to this other world that's where the information is that's where you know you get the really good stuff so yeah Yeah. (laughs) so are they shamanic i don't know yeah 
Well, you know, it's the same when you look at any kind of religious tradition is that we always have these terms often, you know, the isms like Hinduism and Buddhism, but it also applies to Christianity where we act as if it is referring to some monolithic thing when in fact there's an incredible amount of diversity uh, within all of them. And so there always has been. Yeah. And so I don't know any better term to describe what you're referring to than shamanism. Yeah. And that's <laughs> exactly. And, and that and that is the 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 hinge of the cantankerous scholarly debate. It's right. like, well, if we're not going to call it shamanism, what are we going to call this? Right. Right. And I was recently told by someone else I interviewed, and we discussed this as well. She claimed that the entire term uh, shaman actually didn't even come from the Siberian uh, shamans, that it was a Westerner who kind of created the term. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there's always that to think about. Of Uh, course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But that's why, look, I mean, trees aren't actually called trees, if you ask a tree, but some Westerner thought of it, but it's pretty, well, I mean, came up with the word tree, but it's pretty useful. Right. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, And this is one of my areas of interest is not just in the psychedelics or the entheogens, but this sort of shamanic activity seems to be everywhere. And one of the things uh, that I've often asked is that, well, where is it in the Western traditions? Because it seems to be absent, but once you start digging under the surface, it's there. And that's another reason why I appreciate your work because you've done my work for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because, you know, I've just been, uh, investigating these things. And the more I look, the more obvious it is, is that uh, there's this ongoing tradition, even in the West. Sure. I would say that it's more of, I don't know if it's, on, if I would use the word ongoing so much as I would say that it seems to kind of spring up mm-hmm. and then disappear, just like all mm-hmm. things in culture. Um, right. We like uh, psychedelics and entheogenic use of psychedelics are every bit a part of culture as bell bottoms Mm. remember bell bottoms i wasn't alive i don't remember but the point is it's like there wasn't a continuous line of people you you know wearing bell bottoms and maybe being persecuted for it bell bottoms came up in the 70s and then they were gone and then in the early 90s uh when um uh, the, the like the SoCal hip hop was becoming a thing. Uh, Dr. Dre and uh, uh, Snoop Dogg. I remember in their videos, you'd have like the, the women, they'd be wearing these tight pants, but they would bell bottom out mm-hmm. at the bottom. And so it's like, well, is that a continuous line of bell bottom usage? No, it came up in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Then we all lost our minds in the 80s. I don't know what the hell was going on there, but we regained some sanity back with the 90s. And there's, but anyway, the point is, psychedelics work the same way there's not you know we we're now big into using cannabis in western civilization but in the early 1800s late 1700s no not so much at all but -hmm. before that in europe yeah hell yeah we you see you know so it comes and goes maybe it's better to say maybe there's a persistence to it there's definitely a persistence i uh, am of the opinion um that the the human desire to alter our consciousness is right up there with the human desire for joy, 
and sex and eating good food and drinking good beer. I think it's right up there with a, a sure. natural drive. Um, you see it in children. I mean, we, I used to do this. I, you, you see kids that, you know, spin around real fast on the park to right. get themselves dizzy. Yeah. They're getting themselves high. When mm -hmm. I was a kid, I would actually, my older brother used to wear glasses and um, I have perfect 2020, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so the thing is I would put his glasses on and it would distort the world to me. And I would wear his glasses, like specifically for that. I was in the most, you know, pedestrian, childish way, getting myself high simply by putting his glasses on. So I think that there is a natural human drive there. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I used to do things like that when I was a kid. And one of the things I used to do that now I kind of relate to uh, transcendental meditation is I would just take a word and I would chant the word over and over and over. And it altered my consciousness yeah. um, as as a kid and yeah. it was just something that came naturally yeah alfred tennyson did that by just saying his name over and over to himself yeah. he said that he entered some you know a mystical state by just repeating his name to himself mm -hmm. yeah. um, i mean that where i think mushrooms work better personally but yeah <laughs> yes well when i got older i discovered that um so uh one of the things i wanted to ask you about uh kind of jumping forward in history a little bit are the greek mystery traditions and in particular i wanted to ask you about the eleusinian tradition and the dionysian ones absolutely um you know i i teach religious studies so these always come up in my classes and th these are the two i focus on but i know that there are a lot of other mystery traditions and i think you address others in your book as well uh, but we don't want to go over everything we want to encourage people to read your books but at uh, eleusis this is the for anyone who may not know it's the tradition that was based on the myth of demeter and persephone mm -hmm. right and uh it was often seen as being representative of like the agricultural cycles that oh. Persephone was sort of the dying and rising agricultural sort of goddess. Right. And Demeter is the earth mother. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was in early seventies that it was um, uh, rock Wasson and Hoffman. 79. Right? 79. Okay. So later than I thought. Uh, pub published a book, The Road to Eleusis, where they argued that the initiates into the Eleusinian mysteries were given a drink called the Kaikion. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone seems to agree that there was some kind of entheogenic or psychedelic properties to this. Not everyone, but sure. Not everyone? Okay. Many do. Many oh, do. The people I hang out with, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, Ruck, Watson, and Hoffman argued that it was uh, ergot. That seems to be pretty common. And ergot's going to come back later. Uh, and it comes back with the your book on the witch's ointment. Mm -hmm. um, so my understanding, though, is uh, you disagree with yes. this. So I thought that I would ask you, can you say a few words about ergot and why Wasson and Ruck and Hoffman made this claim, and then what your take is, what you think was going on. Sure. So earlier, just uh, not too long ago, you had spoken about, you know, we, we typically throw our ideas onto the past. And if you're a, if you're a, you're, where do you teach if you don't mind my asking? Oh, I, uh, what do I teach? Or no, where do you teach? Oh, uh, I teach at Pasadena City College and oh, right. East okay. Los Angeles College. Okay, cool. Right, so, yeah. Um, so you, you know, as a scholar that 
as you said before, we love to throw our modern ideas onto the past. Now, that's something that historians and especially religious historians know all too well that we do this. The thing is, chemists like Albert Hoffman, bankers like Robert Gordon Wasson, and classicists like Karl Ruck don't realize that they do that. And the reason I disagree with ergot edilusis, I mean, it's a, it's really simple. There is zero evidence for ergot edilusis. Like there is literally nothing. The case that they made in the road to elusis, I don't think is a very good case at all. Them saying, I mean, essentially what they're saying is that, you know, uh, Persephone is a grain goddess and barley grows uh, and uh, ergot grows on grain. So bada boom, bada bing, we're done. Well, to me, that sounds like correlation equaling causation. That's not a good, oh, you can't just say that she was a grain goddess and whatever. So beginning, there's no evidence whatsoever for ergot edilusis. There is evidence for ergot in Catalonia as part of an analog rite. I will say that there was like an analog um, uh, uh, Eleusinian, so to speak, mystery in Catalonia. And there it seems that, w- that they were using ergot. And I think there's good evidence for that. Now at Eleusis, the, it's weird because we always talk about the Kaikion and saying, you know, that, you know, was there an entheogen in the Kaikion? There's no way to know that. And that's not even the right question. Mm-hmm. The right question is what role did opium play in the rites of Eleusis? Because we have tons of evidence for opium's presence at Eleusis. We have statues of Persephone rising from the dead holding opium in her hands. We know that uh, Demeter and Persephone, they were once one goddess, uh, or we know, and I say no, uh, lowercase k on that no. We don't, we, you know, it's ancient history. We don't know anything. We, it's, it has been, um, I think, very well argued that Demeter and Persephone began as one solitary opium goddess in Minoan Kriti, and we have the statues of her. We also have inscriptions from the ancient world that says clear as day to the Greeks, Persephone is still an opium goddess. So we have it in writing. We have it in stone. We have actually a a Christian uh, in, I don't remember, uh, in the early, early second century, actually went and participated in the rites of Eleusis and said that there was opium present. The uh, kista that they would mix the, uh, the kaikion in was a ceramic bowl that had carvings of opium on the bowl. So for all of these reasons, I do not believe they were using ergot. There is some association with opium, but we don't know what that association is. Opium could have been in the Kaikion. I make a case for it in psychedelic mystery traditions, why I think there was opium in there. And I'll just give away the punchline right now, because when Persephone plucks that flower that sends her to the underworld, what was, do you remember what that flower was called, Nick? Yes, it was the 100-petaled narcissus flower. The, yeah, the narcissus. Yeah. Exactly. We literally get the word narcotic, from Narcissus, mm. it's a Greek word. Um, hundred-headed, I believe they meant hundred uses. It has so mm. many different uses for, and again, these are things that I don't have time to get into now, but I argue in psychedelic mm. mystery traditions. So uh, if there's anything I can leave your listeners with, it's that there is zero, on this topic anyway, there is zero evidence for ergot edilusis. The only real question is, 
what role did opium play? For anyone who may not be aware, you know, the mysteries at Eleusis, the initiates seem to have this amazing visionary experience sort of at the height of the uh, initiation. And if I recall correctly, it is that they would say that they saw like the blazing sun at midnight or something like that. Yeah. Uh, And yeah. And that's why people are saying, well, there's got to be something in that Kaikion other than the recipe that we're given of like mint water and barley, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to remember that that's just the only recipe that came down to us. Right. You know, like that, that just, you know, we just so happened to have the Homeric hymn to Demeter. Right. You know, but that could have easily been lost to time like everything else, you know, or not everybody, but like a lot of other, yes, everything was lost. No, but you know what I'm saying? Like that could have easily been lost too. And, you know, so it's, um, and the, yeah, the idea that you can successfully trigger a vision in hundreds of people at a time for thousands of years, I don't know. That seems, I kind of feel like there's got to be something reliable. You know, there has to be. And, and the other thing, as uh, Ruck pointed out, and I agree with him here, the Greeks, and, and we all know this, the Greeks were well-versed and familiar with theater. They knew what theater was. They, they knew that they weren't going to see a play. They knew they were going to see something else. And right. so that's something else. Like they would, what I'm saying, they wouldn't have been fooled by stage props. I want to come back to the theater here in a second, but before I mention it, I do want to go a little bit into the ergot again, Uh, again, for anyone who may not be familiar with what it is and why exactly were Ruck, Wasson and Hoffman making that case that that was what was at Eleusis. That's what I, you know what I, sorry, I, I, I start talking sometimes and I lose that, that, yeah, I, I, I meant to circle back to that. So uh, going back to what you said earlier and uh, how, with anachronisms and how we throw modern ideas onto the past, that's all it is. It's just three very smart gentlemen who do not understand the, the historical criterion of avoiding anachronism, you know, and one of the, one of the issues that I have with our modern understanding of psychedelic history is that it has largely been written by very smart, but wholly mistaken people. Um, They're very smart in their field, but when they step into trying to do history, they ignore all the rules of doing proper history. Uh, Whereas like Albert Hoffman, when he would walk into his lab, there were certain guidelines that he followed to make sure that he was doing science properly. And good, that's what makes him a chemist. The thing is, he didn't realize that you have to do those same things when you're in the library and in the archives. There, there are rules. I mean, you know, these rules, the criterion of contemporary attestation, the criterion of anachronism, avoiding the ad hoc, explanatory scope, explanatory power. Um, You know, these are all rules that historians use, you know, scientific, this is the science of history. So if you're not using these methods, you're not doing history. I don't know what you're doing, but you're not doing history. So with the road to Eleusis, they, except for Karl Ruck's chapter on occult documentation, which is one of the most brilliant pieces on entheogenic history ever written, I'd like to say, 
Um, he has the contemporary attestation. He doesn't force a conclusion. There's no ad hoc. There's no anachronism. But there's also no evidence for Ergot at Eleusis. He shows evidence for all this other stuff, all these other mystery rites, all these other, you know, uh, pagan celebrations. And fuck, do I agree with him on all of that? But you can't say, look at all this other stuff going on. And now look here, we don't have any evidence for it, but look at all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, and in that documentation chapter that he has, which again, brilliant, one of the best pieces ever written um, on the topic, like he doesn't bring up Ergot once. Mm-hmm. Not even whether the rights of Eleusis or anywhere else. It's just, it's just absence. But again, um, for anyone who's unfamiliar with Ergot, what is it? <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's so, okay. Ergot, <laughs> ergot is a fungus that grows on uh, rye grain. Um, ergot uh, comes from the French word argot, A-R-G-O-T, which just means spur, because they have mm. the little spurs sticking out. Mm. Um, they look like these little pieces of black licorice shooting out the sides of, uh, of grain. And um, when they fall to the ground, I'm told that little like fungal mushrooms pop off of them as well. But that I, I don't know uh, if that's true or not. But uh, so ergot has been used um, mostly for medicine. We have some good evidence for its use in medicine. Uh, Hippocrates talks about it. There's a, there was an Assyrian scribe who also talks about it, but doesn't talk about it favorably. He talks about it. He calls it the, or she, I should say, we don't really know. But uh, re- this person refers to it as the loathsome rot. So apparently in Assyria, there was some ergot outbreak and people's limbs were falling off, which also doesn't make it the best, you know, candidate for a entheogenic ceremony. Right. Um, but uh, you do also have, and I read about this in the witch's ointment, in the 1600s, there was a guy named Hans Lillenskold who became a, a kind of a local governor in Finnmark, Norway. And uh, in 1684... I believe, or thereabouts, he wanted to document all the witch trial cases that had taken place in Finnmark since 1620. And I don't remember the exact number of cases, but he had, there was about 70 or 80 cases of witchcraft over that that century, starting from 1620 to the 1680s. And in about 17 or 18 of these cases, there's clear evidence of women giving other women ergot specifically to teach them the secrets of witchcraft. So I thought that that was really interesting that they they had this idea that you again there's that shamanic idea of you have to enter this other world to learn this occult knowledge. Yeah. So um, that's uh, and then of course uh, Albert Hoffman famously synthesized uh, LSD from ergot, right. and uh, one of the reasons why getting back to an earlier question. Sorry, I do this sometimes. I, I kind of tend to Tarantino interviews. <laughs> I apologize. Um, so to, one of the reasons people today like to say that, like to imagine that there was, um, you know, some LSD like substance that eluces and not opium is because, well, we have an opioid crisis in America today mm. in Canada and Mexico and Western Europe. So we can't mostly America. So we can't, Oh, we can't say that because opium is now bad. Well, to us, it is the mm. ancient Greeks loved it. They loved it for recreation. They loved it for magic. They loved it for spirituality. And I think they loved it in their, their mystery rituals, their, their, uh, you know, their mystery ceremonies. There seems to be pretty good evidence for that. So one of the things, again, that we do, that's that anachronism is we just, we throw our preferences onto the past. And that's why people want to see LSD at Eleusis. You can't do that though. You have to take each place in time. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come back to Ergot. Uh, 
want to kind of stay in Greece, but we'll come back to Urgot with uh, the uh, witch trials. Sure. Um, I think to stick with the Greeks for a moment, you had mentioned that the initiates would have understood theater, mm-hmm. right? That's my guess. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a good guess. My understanding is, unless Nietzsche got it wrong, uh, is that theater actually evolved out of the Dionysian mystery traditions or the Dionysian traditions. Sure. Uh, so, well, Nietzsche got a lot wrong. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I'll stop and No, I just wanted to ask about the Dionysian traditions because Dionysus is also an agricultural god, but he's associated with the vine, with wine. Yeah. And uh, the Dionysian traditions are, you know, they were, from what we understand, they were very ecstatic. And I always wondered, is it just wine that's going on there? No. And uh, so I wanted to ask you what was going on. Sure. So um, sometimes, so the, the Dionysian cults were spread out all over uh, Western Europe, um, mostly in Thrace, Asia Minor today, we would say, or uh, Turkey, that area, uh, Greece, uh, and Italy as well. Uh, although they got, they were taken out by the, uh, the Romans in, I think it was 187 before the common era, Livy writes about it. The, the Romans made the Dionysian rites illegal and executed a whole lot of uh, revelers, a whole lot of partiers. But so with uh, starting with the idea of the Dionysian um, rites growing out of theater, um, it's possible. And I want to say that the, we literally, there is, there is a bit of an overlap. So I want to make sure that I get the nuance correct here because we get, literally get theology and theater. There's a reason they start with mm. the thus. Right, right, right. Because there, there is a connection there where Nietzsche, I believe is wrong is that the, the term, the idea of theater and theology and the idea of these performances that eventually became religion, right? It, it, the, that overlap goes way far back in history, further back in history than the cults of Dionysus. And by the time we get to the cults of Dionysus, there is a split between what's considered theater and what's considered mystery. So there is absolutely linguistically, I would agree with Nietzsche there, a tie to those two words in a in the very 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 distant past but again by the time we're talking about the rights of eleusis the rights of dionysus there those two the road had forked by that time yeah my my understanding and i could be wrong because it's been a very long time since i've read nietzsche was kind of the reverse not that um the dionysian tradition emerged out of theater but that theater emerged out of these ecstatic traditions Sure. Did I say yeah. it backwards? Yeah. I apologize. Yes, yeah. that's. Yeah. I I am so sorry. Yes, no, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. It it began with the revel. I'm right. so sorry. It began with the uh, revelations with the God, right? And then eventually, you know, and uh, today, television, yeah. or I guess some people don't have TVs anymore, but Netflix. I mean, that's what you you know. They're dynamic characters that you're invested in that are going through, you know, the, the Joseph Campbellian hero's journey, you know, mm-hmm. and so we're still doing that. So I, I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 
flipped them. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. But what was in the wine? Was it just wine? Was it? So some, so we know of three different kinds of wine from mm-hmm. the ancient world. There was the regular kind of wine where, you know, you buy it at a store. There was really strong wine that had to be mixed with water. Mm-hmm. And then there was another kind of wine that had plant matter mixed in it. My colleague, Chris Bennett, actually has an article on cannabis culture called um, The Infused Wines of, Di- of the Dionysian Cult, I believe is the mm-hmm. title. If you were to put in a Google search, Chris Bennett, Dionysus Infused Wines, it'll come right up. We have some really good evidence that people were putting stuff in these wines, mostly because descriptions of them don't sound like regular being drunk. And also that they do refer to... Now, uh, let me say something else. It's possible that when they refer to the strong wines, that they're talking about the infused wines Mm. as well. So there could have just been a stronger kind of wine that needed to be mixed with water. And we know that those existed. We know that there were regular kinds that were not as strong. And also we have, um, as far as the infused wines, we have uh, the Greek amphorae, which were the containers, uh, the different wine containers. Now, we have archaeochemical evidence for opium being mixed in this wine because they've scraped the inside of them and, uh, and these chemists have found traces of opium. Now, not only that, but the amphorae is actually in the shape of an opium bulb. Because mm-hmm. if you're a merchant selling wine and you have these different jugs and somebody wants, you know, weaker wine and you accidentally give them the opium wine, <laughs> you know, they weren't <laughs> expecting that. You're not a very good business person. So they would literally carve the, the, the juglets to look like the thing that was inside of it. If there were something, and we have uh, dozens of these opium ones, so we know that they were definitely putting opium in their wine. Yeah, very uh, interesting. There's uh, evidence for cannabis infusions as well. Uh, for that, again, I would refer your listeners to Chris Bennett's work. He's just a, you know, a, 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 a giant on, on that, in that area. Yeah, he, he's on my list of people I want to speak to. There's also then I'd also like to say so then there are so Chris and I we talk about the big four of the ancient world cannabis opium mandrake and henbane those are the four that come up the most. But then there are other things getting back to the Dionysian rituals, this whole thing with ivy, like, mm. what the hell is going on here because we don't know of any kind of psychoactive ivy. Yet when Plutarch writes about the Maenads, who are the votive offers, uh, Dionys- the votive worshippers, I should say, of Dionysus. When Plutarch writes about them, he says that they would eat ivy and it would cause for them this religious, this spiritual excitation and bring about a wineless drunkenness. Wait, a wineless drunkenness? That to me sounds like an entheogenic experience. It's like they're getting intoxicated. You know what? I actually have, give me one second. Sure. I'll, I'm going to read it real quick. Um, as I have it right here, chapter four, celebrations of the living fire. Uh, this is from Plutarch. He writes, women possessed by Bacchic frenzies, i.e. Dionysus, rush straight away for ivy and tear it to pieces, clutching it in their hands and biting it with their teeth. So that not altogether without plausibility are they who assert that ivy Possessing as it does an exciting and distracting breath of madness, deranges persons and agitates them, and in general brings on a wineless drunkenness and joyousness in those that are precariously disposed towards spiritual spiritual exaltation. He is describing an entheogenic experience here. Like, there is no doubt about that. 
but we don't know of any psychoactive ivy. So maybe this ivy was over harvested. Maybe it's extinct. I mean, just like animals go extinct, different plants go extinct. Um, maybe this is just a cover for maybe ivy, or not a cover, but a slang word for something else. In the same way, let's say in 2024, all of a sudden cannabis is eliminated from the United States of America. And let's say there's a, a nuclear holocaust, Gaia forbid, right? Now, 500 years later, archaeologists are sifting through the debris of what used to be America, and they find references to people smoking weed. Now, like, wait, people said, there's no such thing as psychoactive weed. What are these people talking about? Were they really putting weed into these cigarettes? No, they just don't realize that that's a slang term for cannabis. So Ivy, getting back to it, could be just like that. It could be a slang term for something else, mm -hmm. uh, just like Nepenthes. Uh, Helen famously uh, dolls out the, uh, the Nepenthes. We have no idea what Nepenthes was, you know, but we know that it, it alleviated anger and sorrow and, you know, uh, it caused some kind of recreational high. Could have been cannabis, could have been opium, could have been something else. Um, there's another category of, of substances in the ancient world, and these are the unknown psychoactives. So, for example, have you ever heard of uh, gelatophilus? No. Me neither. We have yeah. no idea what that was. We know that Pliny said that the Magi would use it to uh, divine and see spirits, but we don't know what it was. We, have you ever heard of Hestia Terrace? I haven't. Mm. How about Thesagel or Theangeles? We don't know what any of these things were. Or how about Hurrian Luke or Hippomanes? These are all things written about in ways that we would say were psychedelic or entheogenic or psychomagical in some way. And we have no idea what they were. They could have been mushrooms. They could be slang terms for cannabis. We don't know. I find it incredibly interesting. And I don't know that people how familiar people are with these entheogens and the kind of the origins of religions. And uh, I know that this, this isn't your wheelhouse, but I know Chris Bennett has written about uh, Soma. Uh, and I think in, it's uh, in the Zoroastrian traditions, it's Halma. Um, yeah, yeah. And we see this in the Greek mystery traditions. Uh, it's in the Eleusinian, the Dionysian. I think you make connections to other traditions as well. Wait, with um, Aoma with Greek? No, 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 no. With entheogens. Oh, with uh, yes, just yes, in general. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I only know of Aoma in terms of the Zoroastrians and the, yeah, uh, in the Indian traditions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, the I Vedic thought, traditions. Yeah. Um, I, I was making sure you weren't saying that I was saying that they were using. So many no, 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 no. Like, oh my God, no, no, that was my no. credibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. You said that. No. Soma's not your wheelhouse. I don't think. Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to, another thing I wanted to ask about is Christianity. It seems to me that often it seems like it's just missing, but I also know that there are connections between early Christian sacraments and the Dionysian sacraments. You know, there's really kind of no mistaking the, it's there in terms of the wine, drinking the wine, um, that that is seen as the blood of the God and the eating of the flesh. That's the homophagia. That is what was also found in the Dionysian traditions. Sure. But that's just Paul going earlier to the right. actual disciples. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't agree with that, that mm -hmm. to them, the, the bread and wine were just a traditional Seder. Right, right, right. So 
right, right. You know, that, so I agree with you yeah. that Paul yeah. thought that, but you know, that was because he wanted to convert the uh, the Gentiles. Right. So I, I'm coming up with yeah. any excuse to use the word Gentile these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I. So I, anyway, I interrupted. I apologize. Well, no, I was just uh, asking about you know were entheogens absent from the early Christian movement. I know that there's evidence. I think of cannabis uh, being burnt in Jewish temples. Oh yeah, or or in the temple. I'm not entirely sure which. Temple of Arad. Okay, yeah. um, but what about the early Christian movement? Is there any evidence at all um, that there was use of entheogens? Well, so there's the the best we can say is that there were there was obviously a use of wine. Mm-hmm. And there, there very well could have been entheogens in that wine. In fact, um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, so you're probably familiar with this, um, when he talks about, you know, some of you are taking too much of the Eucharist and you're getting sick or some of you are even dying. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that's not ordinary wine and that's not mm-hmm. ordinary bread. If they're saying that if you take too much, you get sick or you could die. Well, that that could lead, you know, there might be opium in there because that's the kind of thing where if you take too much, it will kill you. And, you know, you can get sick as well. But if you take a responsible amount or mandrake as well, if you take too much, it'll kill you or it'll make you delirious or it'll put you in a coma. But if you take a smaller amount, you're you know, you'll have an entheogenic experience with it if if you, you know, put yourself in that mind state to do so. So uh, there's also the um, this early Christian text. I want to talk about two of them. One of them was called uh, the Didascalion. And in this text, it says that, um, you know, the question is, should we drink wine? And the answer is, uh, yeah, the Lord drank wine. So definitely drink wine, but don't drink too much that you get too drunk. Just drink a responsible amount. Well, what I'm thinking, who exactly is going to police what's a responsible amount of wine? And, you know, what is it? You know, there's no way to police that. So I think that's what was going on in Corinth. On top of which, in Corinth, and this is, you know, this is ancillary, but uh, there is a town in Corinth known as Makoni. Makoni means opium village. That's where the majority of opium in Greece was actually grown, and they'd ship it out all over the Mediterranean. So there was plenty of opium there for them to be, you know, uh, indulging, uh, whether in the, uh, whoever the Didascalian is talking about, or Paul. Then there is an amazing, extraordinary account called Second Esdras. Now, what I love about this account, and it's chapter, I think, five in Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, four or five, uh, it's called, the chapter is called The Fire Like Cup. And that's where I get into this. I mean, do you want me to unpack this? Because it's, sure. it's take a sec. So what makes this account uh, extraordinary is that it was written by a Jewish apocalypticist on the verge of when Jewish apocalypticists are becoming Christians, because the first Christians before there was Christianity, when there was still just the Nazarenes, there were all apocalypticists. Mm-hmm. Now, some authors have dated Second Ezra to the time of Ezra, which was in the before common era. I'm not sure of the dates. Mm-hmm. But they haven't read the actual text. They've just read the little snippet of it that talks about the entheogen. And, you know, when you do that, you take things out of context. I think Jerry Brown does that. Um, and so do others. I've gotten into debates with people about this. The thing is, when you actually read the text, it is so very clearly a 
uh, first century of the common era text. You could tell by the writing style. He's talking about the the uh, the uh, second the rebuilding of the temple for the second time. I mean, come on, this is clearly a second century text, probably written around the time that Mark was writing his gospel. That's that's when I would date it. Anyway, this guy uh, Ezra, who is the character here, goes off into the wilderness, and he is met with these different ordeals of fasting, self-flagellation, things like that, meditation, prayer. And on the final day, he is, when he's finally readied himself, he is now supposed to drink what's called the fire-like cup. And once he does, it gives him all of these visions and his heart becomes open. And he's telling of these fantastic sights and visions he's seeing. And he had to hire scribes to write it all down because there was so much stuff going on. Now, this sounds like some kind of initiation process where you start off with the classical techniques of ecstasy, fasting, prayer, meditation, isolation, solitude, all that stuff that works as well. And when you're finally ready there, you take it and you have this vision. And his vision, of course, was of Jesus overtaking the Romans. Again, how we know that this is a second century, or excuse me, first century document. Right. Um, but so, yeah, in answer to your question, um, I think that first Corinthians and second Esdras and um, uh, the Didascalian all point towards some kind of knowledge of entheogenic use uh, in the past. Uh, I'd like to say one more thing on this topic. In the ancient world, when you read texts like uh, 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 coming from Solomon and actually Josephus, we know that mandrake, the highly psychoactive, sometimes entheogenic mandrake, was used to expel demons. Now, what was one of JC's specialties? Oh, Expelling yeah. demons. Mm -hmm. Now, either he was the all-powerful son of the one true God, probably not. Or he used the same methods that every other healer used in those days to expel demons, which was the use of mandrake. Mm. So, uh, and my, again, my colleague and friend, Chris Bennett, um, he's made cases for uh, Jesus's use of cannabis. And here, I would say that because of cannabism and Jesus, I mean, he was, he's called rabbi, I think like 40 times in the New Testament. So he was certainly familiar with the Old Testament. And he would have known what cannabism was, mm -hmm. and it's cannabis. There's also, let me also say just one last thing, and then I'll, I'll shut up. Um, Herodotus is the, uh, the histories, right? He writes about the, um, the Scythians using cannabis in their rites. Very famous. We're all, we all know that passage. Well, one thing that is a little more obscure knowledge on this is that every single first, second, third century Christian author learned how to write in Greek and Latin by copying out the history. You're shaking your head because you don't write. Yeah. The histories was the ancient world's schoolhouse rock. Right. If you could write in Greek and Latin, you learned how to write in Greek and Latin, copying, painstakingly copying out Herodotus's histories. So bar none, every single Christian author who copied out a gospel knew exactly what cannabis was and how to use it spiritually because of Herodotus. Uh, very, very interesting and something I don't think most people are aware of. <laughs> um, and early Christianity is such a diverse oh, yeah. thing anyway. You know, I always refer to it. I try to refer to it rather than early Christianity as these early Jesus movement. Yeah. Um, early Christologies. Yeah. That's yeah, what they, exactly. I, I agree totally there, Nick. And right. um, uh, 
there was also the, the various Gnostic groups who we knew were using this stuff. Uh, right. In my book, Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, and you'll get, I have three different chapters on how Christians use psychoactive plants. So that deals with early Christians. Mm-hmm. Now with um, later, like medieval Christians, uh, they, we have some really good evidence that they were using stuff as well. Uh, cannabis, opium, and mandrake. We have excellent evidence for that. Okay. That's um, the, the later Christians. The later Christians. Yeah. yeah. And that's chapter, I think, six or seven. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, in here. Um, yeah, it's chapter eight called Patrons of the Serpent. Okay. And All the right. one before that, chapter seven, Disciples of Their Own Minds, is how different Gnostic groups and uh, used uh, psychedelic or and even for, uh, entheogens as well. Um, and I just want to say real quick to your listeners, that word Gnostic is an umbrella term. So I don't mean to say that all these people say, again, you're shaking your head, Nick, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. teach religious history. Yeah, so yeah. you know that yeah. they were all very different and they had very different belief systems. So, right. um, the word Gnostic is, is as problematic as like saying ancient Christianity, which is why mm-hmm. we say ancient Christologies or Jesus movements would be right. an excellent, uh, uh, way of putting it as well too, Nick. Yeah. 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 I'm lecturing on the Gnostics tonight. In fact, oh, you <laughs> so, are. Dude, yeah. I'd love to come there and, and yeah. sit in on it. Yeah. Yeah. The Gnostics and uh, I add it to the course. Um, I do the Gnostics and I throw in a little bit of hermeticism um, and uh, just a touch of alchemy because no oh, one just else. A, just a pinch. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think that anyone else uh, who teaches this material, especially at the community college level, actually introduces these aspects. You know, it's pretty much, no, we're just going to focus on the Abrahamic traditions and we're going to ignore. I mean, I imagine that there would be some discussion of the Gnostics, but Hermeticism totally gets left out, um, I think, shut out. But it's so important, I believe. Um, so I, I, I try to be uh, as much of a rebel as I can in my own ways. Um, awesome. <laughs> uh, but, a little ways. Yeah. But, you know, speaking about the Christianity here and this use of, you know, psychedelics and these entheogenic experiences, at some point, it seems as if this gets suppressed yes. or actively, you know, actively suppressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe this will lead us into the idea of the witches and the witches ointment. How did this happen? Um, It happened a lot sooner in history than people think. Um, Mostly this stuff happened with the rise of family friendly Christmas traditions in the early 1800s. Uh, and also the temperance movement. It became like there, there was this shift between, yeah, Um, You can't be a good Christian if you're drinking all the time. Mm -hmm. But before, but I mean, literally up until the late 1700s, early 1800s, that was not the case at all. People considered themselves Christians and got sauced every day. I mean, especially in in the United States where, you know, during uh, the revolutionary period, as it's called, uh, this is one of those weird little tidbits from history that we, we can't fathom today. But when you were on the job, your boss was required to supply the alcohol when you went to work. Yeah, they were required. Mm. You had to supply alcohol to your workers while they were working. I think that's pretty interesting. So, um, and all those people would have considered themselves Christians, Mm -hmm. every one of them. Um, Every single magician 
in, uh, uh, in the Renaissance era that opened up a grimoire and lit some henbane and some opium uh, and some cannabis to inhale the le- and make spirits or demons appear, every single one of them saw themselves as a pious Christian. In fact, if you read uh, these demonology texts, and I translated some of these in my books, they say that in in the preamble to these books, they say, first and foremost, if you are not a pious Christian, do not even try to do this. Don't even attempt it because it is going to destroy you because you're working with demons. So Mm -hmm. you better be a pious Christian if you're going to do this. So um, and so all of those guys, Paracelsus, who we know was inhaling opium and cannabis and getting drunk off his ass every day and doing all three at the same time. He was a Christian. Uh, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim, he writes in three books of occult philosophy that, oh, yeah, I like to burn henbane and uh, opium and smallage and some other incense because it makes spirits appear in the air. In fact, I call them herba spiritus, the spirits herbs. He considered himself a pious Christian. There's here, whoever wrote this, you know, I'll give you another pretty awesome quote for people that think that medieval Christians were not having these experiences. This is from a late 12th century text called the Trupeter Hohelie, which is the Trudpert Song of Songs. It's written in um, archaic German, but I've translated, well, I had a friend translate it because I don't read archaic German. This is from the Trupeter Hoholai. This is a mystic Christian's mystical application of mandrake and what she wrote about it. The mark of mandrake root brings intoxication. This root denotes God, the image of whom was Christ. On earth, he was a man, for he is a medicine and a security for eternal life. He is the root, meaning he is the mandrake. The root's bark, meaning the the intoxicating effect, is the Holy Ghost. This means the numbing vapor, which makes all lovers of Holy Christ sleep. Hmm. I don't want to hear that Christians weren't talking about their mystical experiences with these plants. Thomas of Persane writes, Mandragora symbolize aspiration through contemplation. You know, you get together with your friends, you smoke a joint, and you all start having these deep talks. He's talking about doing that with Mandry. This tranquility makes it possible for a person to fall asleep of such delightful sweetness that he will no longer feel anything of the cutting which his earthly enemies visit upon him. For his soul has now closed its eyes to all that is outside. It lies in the good sleep of the eternal. That's what he called an entheogenic experience, the good sleep of the eternal. But no, Christians weren't using this stuff. (laughs) Not at all. Right. And I got uh, plenty more, again, three chapters worth. Of yeah. Stuff. But at some point they began oppressing it though. And is that with the, this, uh, the flying ointments that end up becoming the witches ointments. And I think it's important to make that distinction, which you Absolutely. do. Yeah. But let's make this distinction because there's an even more important, and I agree that we should, but an even more important distinction is that the plants themselves were never made illegal. It was the belief in the goddess that was Mm -hmm. condemned. So we know this because um, there was a guy named uh, Giambattista della Porta, who was a natural scientist living in the mid 1500s. He wrote in his book, um, uh, Natural uh, Natural Magic, uh, Naturals Magicae. He wrote of all these different preparate, magical preparations with opium, mandrake, henbane, right? All these different magical stuff, how to work with it. And then he says, oh, and by the way, you know, those women that say that they fly away at night. Yeah, they're actually just using this stuff, too. That, that's all this really is. 
Now, there was a French jurist named Jean Bowden who was pissed off. It's like, well, wait a minute. We're trying to execute these people because we're saying that, you know, like this is not, you know, it, that this is all really happening. So he was going to put Jean-Baptiste de la Porta on trial for saying that that's how witches were, or wise women, what they really were, mm -hmm. were using this stuff. So in the next edition of uh, Natural Magic, de la Porta still has all of the recipes for using these plants in magical ways. And when I say magical ways, I mean, he talks about using them to like pretend that you've turned into a goose or a duck and you just walk around town as a goose. Or that's what you did before television. Anyway, point is, he still has all this stuff in the second edition, except where he says that women are using these plants to do it, too. Because the jurors wanted to say that it was the devil doing it. Right. They didn't, the plants, I mean, they were whatever, you know, they, they didn't make those illegal. The first, the first actual law against um, a psychoactive and entheogenic plant doesn't come until I think six, the late 1600s. And it was against in one place in Wurttemberg, Germany, and it's just against nightshade mm. taking, you know, belladonna and using it for visionary purposes. Wow, that's very oh, interesting. Oh, and there was there was one law in the early 1500s. There's another way we know that they were putting these plants in their stuff. There was, uh, it wasn't a law, rather. It was a guy got fined for putting henbane in his beer. And another guy wrote how he said, you know, you know, I'll put, you know, Dutch myrtle. I'll put these fresh, you know, uh, these sweet smelling stuffs in my beer. But God damn, all those people putting henbane and mandrake and all this stuff in their beer. I'm not going to do that. You know, so we know that people were doing. Right. Right. So it seems if I'm hearing everything correctly, the suppression of these really is more about maybe misogyny and oh, squashing yeah. <laughs> paganism. Right. Yeah. Oh, it is all about this. Yeah. It's yeah. paganism. First of all, they're right. not worshiping, you know, the Christian God. And wait, wait, you tell me they're not worshiping the, the Christian God and they've replaced Jesus with a woman. Right. <gasps> Faint and couch theologian there. How yeah. dare they? So that's what was made illegal. It was the use of these plans to fall into a trance to meet the goddess. Mm. It was the meeting of the goddess that was that was suppressed. Yeah. And it was absolutely misogynist. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look, uh, since we're recording this the Thursday before Halloween. Uh, so let's talk about the witches and maybe we can even focus on Salem a little bit. Sure. And uh, I have uh, personal connections to Salem. And I know that just a few things is that I don't think this is a connection to the pagan traditions. And I know that I think back in the seventies, uh, it was suggested that what was going on was ergot poisoning to come back to ergot. Mm -hmm. And this is still a popular view. Uh, mm -hmm. when I discuss this in classes, I always have a student who will bring it up. It's like, well, that was just ergot poisoning. Right. Yep. And I disagree with that. And I believe okay. that you disagree with it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I debunk it in uh, wonder child. Yeah. So if, uh, if your student is interested, uh, they could definitely, I think it's chapter three in wonder child. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so there is no evidence for the use of ergot at um, uh, or for ergot poisoning at Salem. Um, when you, 
so one of the things that you have to do as a historian, uh, as, as you know, um, is that if something starts, like, you know, some event starts, to find out how it started, you have to go back to the beginning of it. Right? Like, what ignited this? What set this off? And when you go back to the beginnings of the Salem witch trials, there is no mention of Ergot at all. Now, later on in the year, I will say this. Um, and here's where that whole thing from the 70s came from. So the Salem witch trials began in earnest in January and February of 1692. The first report that could be seen as ergotism, which I believe it was, doesn't come until August, September of 1692. So almost a year later. And why would that be? Well, because that's, you know, when, when the crops are coming out, right? Mm -hmm. So the thing is, the Salem witch trials started with um, two girls that were playing around with a, um, a slave woman named Tichaba. And fearing that they would get in trouble for this, they blamed, they, they blamed Tichaba for witchcraft. And then they started to act up as if they'd been bewitched. Now, here's one of the problems that, uh, you know, your student might not be aware of, but at some point, so this starts to spread. So these, this one little, this girl starts having these convulsions and fits that only happen in the presence of the judges and jurors or of the accused. That's mighty specific for ergotism. Ergotism doesn't wait around for certain people to be in a room before it shows its symptoms. It's, you know, you're, you're just screwed the second you have ergotism. The fact that um, these little girls would like run around the room flapping their arms and like, oh, I'm flying. Like, that's not ergot poisoning at all. The fact that they showed no outward signs of ergot poisoning, their skin didn't get dark, their limbs didn't fall off, none of that. The fact that some of the girls started to denounce the other girls because they said, yo, yo, you're starting to take this a little too far now. Um, like, we don't want any part of this. Like, when this is going, this is getting a bit too deep. Oh my God, I'm suddenly cured. I'm not, uh, you know, the witch can't get me anymore. You know, all of a sudden they're just like, that is not ergot point. Like, so the point is that what is more likely that ergot kicked off the Salem witch scares of which there's no evidence or a bunch of girls, rep highly repressed girls with fruitful imaginations, enjoying a most coveted attention that little girls did not receive in 1692 or any other part in history until the modern era. And they had all this attention. What, what's more like? Right. Obviously, these little girls are just lying because right. it, it's like, you know, it's uh, who said it? I think it was Thomas Paine that said, um, what's more likely um, that a woman should give birth uh, without the usual means of procreation or that a woman should tell a lie about who she's been sleeping. What's yeah. more likely to happen? Yeah. Referring to Mary, which is well with here, what's more likely was it really ergot or was it a bunch of girls, you know, yeah. enjoying this attention. And that's, yeah. and when you get in and you read the actual records and you see that as soon as, you know, they take Tichaba out of the courtroom, all of a sudden, Oh, we're better. And I it's like, get out of here. This, that's yeah. not. Ergot. Yeah. Yeah, I think that when people actually dig into the Salem witch trials, uh, it becomes painfully obvious that yeah. it wasn't ergot poisoning. And it because it wouldn't have been just a few girls anyway. Yeah, that's the other thing. It would have, yeah, And also considering their age, they would have all died. We're talking right. about 12, a bunch, a group of girls between the age of uh, nine and like 1920. Yeah. All of them dead. From like, there's no, you're not surviving that. And yeah, of course, it's like, the, it's just 
this little group of girls, their parents didn't get like nobody else in the household. Right. right. You know, and when and here's the thing, when you do get to the records of what, what I think is ergot poisoning later in the year in August, September time, like when they're harvesting the grains, they do talk about the kids dying. They do talk about the cattle dying. They talk about the people roughly in their, you know, 30s and 40s getting very sick, but they survived it. But their parents, the elderly did. And what do you know? The children died, the elderly died, but the people in the prime of their life got really sick, lost a limb, but they survived. What do you know? Right. That's and, about poisoning. And none yeah. of that appears in the January or February or March, April, May, June, or July records. Yeah. And it also ignores. Oh, no, April. There is one. Sorry. Yeah. There is one in April. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. But it also ignores that this began before Salem. And this is where my family comes in because it's one of my ancestors, uh, Cotton Mather, who really? wrote the yeah who wrote the first history of yeah. the Salem witchcraft trials. But he also recorded before this in Boston, there was a case of someone, a girl saying that you know she was victim of witchcraft, and he had her in yes. the house. Yes, 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 and um, reported on that, and that seems to have lit the spark. And he and his uh, grandfather, Increase Mather, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, also were the ones who argued to allow what they referred to as spectral evidence mm-hmm. so that the girl could say, oh, well, this person came to me in their spirit form, yeah, and yeah, was like yeah. poking me and attacking me and things yeah. like that. Um, and when you actually look at the records of the trials and everything, it just seems like it was a whole bunch of petty grievances. Yeah, that were exactly. coming to the fore. Yep, you know? I, I just put it together. Your last name is Mather. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, that is so cool. Yeah, I'm actually a descendant, not from Cotton or Increase, but from the patriarch is Richard. So it was Richard. So it was Increase's brother Timothy that my family oh. traces their lineage from. Um, so but cool. regardless, my family has a lot to account for. <laughs> so yeah. I'm always doing ancestral work, I think. Um, oh, that's not on you. You didn't do it. Yeah, but it still seems important. I, I feel like there's a karmic aspect of why oh, I do sure. the things that I do. Oh, uh, yeah. And, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do ancestor work as well, but I... I always make sure that I don't ever feel guilty for something that oh, yeah. somebody living hundreds right. of years before me did, because that's ridiculous. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I don't feel guilt about it at all. No, but some um, people do, I guess like yeah. some people that yeah. do the end, it's like, Oh, I feel it's like, well, you shouldn't. That's, yeah. that's not, you shouldn't, you should feel right. guilty when you do something wrong. If you didn't right. do it for sure, wrong, for sure, for sure. So uh, I know we're starting to run out of time here a little bit, uh, but I wanted to ask uh, just a couple of questions about, where we are now, because we also seem to be in a psychedelic renaissance. Oh, yeah. And we're seeing things like uh, Denver, which is where I actually consider home is Denver, but uh, Denver, Oakland, Santa Cruz have all decriminalized uh, psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And uh, Oregon, uh, where you are, decriminalized all substances. Everything, yeah. Uh, California is in the process of doing the same. We also legalized psilocybin therapy for the city of Portland. Wow. Okay. So there were, there were two measures. There was Prop 109 and Prop 110. Uh, one decriminalized all substances in the state. The other legalized yeah, psilocybin in the city of Portland for therapy. Okay. So we are the first city to, in uh, the United States to legalize psilocybin for therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, my partner and I worked on that and we worked on decrim. 
too. Okay. We did both. We, we started with the legal, but we tended to, we didn't have time for both because it was a lot of work. And we tended to gravitate more towards decriminalization because I think personally that decriminalization is far more important than legalization by a lot. Uh, why? Because with legalization, you're going to get capitalism and then it's going to, capitalism is going to do to mushrooms what McDonald's did to the hamburger. Mm. And uh, or what it did to cannabis. Right. And um, I don't want to see that happen at all. And if it's legalized, that's when these corporate bullshit venture capitalist pieces of human shit can come in and kind of mess with things where if it's decriminalized, it's not technically legal. You can't start an illegal business because, it's you know, right. it's not it's not it's this in this purgatory zone. So um, everybody should be opting for decriminalization. And if you hear anybody, Nick, say, oh, my God, decriminalization, that's a step towards legalization. Just zip. No, no, it's not. And it should not be. If you get decriminalized in your area, keep it there. Do not legalize it. One of the things I, I think that maybe this question feeds into this, because I wanted to ask you if you think we've learned our lessons from the past. Uh, specific. Never learn our yeah. <laughs> but, come on, Nick. There's no way. Well, what you mean, the human race? No. Well, well, I think sometimes we might learn a few lessons, but and specifically, what I was thinking about was uh, what you're writing about in the book, the LSD, the Wonder Child, because it's not just about LSD, but it's the psychedelics and psychedelic studies in the 1950s. Yeah. And, you know, there's a good side and there's a bad side to it. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of it's incredibly fascinating. And, but I think it, where I would focus is with likes of people like Aldous Huxley, mm -hmm. who were definitely using this, uh, these substances for philosophical and spiritual purposes. Absolutely. And then, you know, I guess my major question is, is that because right now the focus seems to be on therapy. Yes. Uh, kind of uh, either decriminalizing or legalizing for the use in therapy. And there's definitely value in that. But there's also value for the spiritual practices. Absolutely. And so when I was thinking of have we learned our lessons, what I was really thinking about is, are we going to avoid a Tim Leary this time around, who's going to come and kind of ruin the party for everyone? I, you know, that is the um that's the question and i'm i'm hoping obviously that that doesn't happen i think let me say this that every psychiatrist psychologist medical professional that i am aware of that's working with this stuff is well aware of the timothy leary pitfall and i'm like everybody knows how much on, you know, a knife's edge, all of this research rests. And so I, I think that while I have my doubts sometimes about humanity learning from the past on a grand scale, I think that within the psychedelic Renaissance, we all know that that, because I mean, when we're all learning, so Timothy Leary is the first person most of us ever learn about. You know, or one of the first, you know, maybe we heard about the Beatles or, or Allen Ginsberg or something, but most of us, you know, our introduction is me, certainly, and almost all my friends, first person we heard of was Timothy Leary. And then, you know, after that would be Terrence McKenna, you know, right. but we all heard of Leary first. And um, I think that, and, and we all learned about him and what he did and 
how this all kind of this whole debacle. And I think we're all like, yeah, we can't let that happen again. We got to make sure that we're, you know, keeping, you know, this a little bit more professional. The, the problem is there was that bullshit um, psychedelic invest article, which is two words that should never be put together. It actually makes me gag to say that. But they had this like hundred most influential people of psychedelia. And you haven't heard of 90 of them. Wow. They're, not, they're just venture capitalists. They're like, and it's like they have their bios. And it's like, so you have certain guys like Ben Sessa, who's uh, he works with um, MDMAs, a good friend of mine, colleague over in the UK. Um, he's in Bristol and yeah, I believe he's still in Bristol, but he's one of the people working with MDMA, like made by the government. It's like he's working with, you know, parliament or whatever. I don't know how their legal system works or what that is or what, whatever their FDA is called, but um, or their version of the FDA. Uh, but he's working with them. And, um, you know, he uh, like he's a real straight laced guy. And, you know, like he just like everybody, he doesn't want to see the stuff, you know, falter the so there are certain guys in that article like, sorry i tarantino these things so certain guys in that article like ben sessa who are legit supposed to be in there guys like rick doblin legit he's supposed to be in there uh paul stamets uh dennis mckenna all those guys supposed to be in there the rest of them are uh, joe moore who runs psychedelics today but so yeah there's the the problem and why i don't think we did learn from the past is that they had all these idiot venture capitalists on this list and whoever made up this list obviously doesn't know anything about psychedelia, psychedelic culture, or who's actually out there doing the real work. I mean, I mean, this article got torn apart. I mean, people in, in the psychedelic renaissance, I mean, it was like the laughing stock of the psychedelic renaissance for like two weeks to the fact that psychedelic invest again, two words that should never be next to each other issued an apology because wow. of the backlash. And they're like, wow, okay. We didn't realize and they're like, well, who do you think should be on the list? And our collective response was, fuck you, figure that out. Yeah. Like, stop putting these idiots on the list. Like, these right. people that don't know anything about it. This guy that was just born rich with a silver spoon in his pocket. And it's just like, oh, yeah, like, heard about psilocybin therapy at, you know, Burning Man. And now just wants to throw his stupid money. But I get the fuck out of here. Get <laughs> out of here. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. We don't need yeah. those people. Grassroots, yeah. ground up. We need the witches, the magicians, the heads, the freaks, the fucking, the star people, whatever. Those are the people we need bringing this message to the public. We don't need this right. nonsense, bullshit media. We don't need the corporations. We don't need it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's with my that. rant. I'm sorry, everybody. That's yeah. my rant. Yeah, that's okay. Rants are allowed every now and then. So what do you see? <laughs> yeah, what do you see now? Where do you think we're heading with all of this? Well, so if we go the psychedelic invest way again, two words that should never be yeah. next to each other. This is all going to be over in right. two years because you're going to have some clownish leery figure come mm -hmm. along with that. Right. Whereas if the, it depends. So that's a great question. It depends on who introduces these medicines to the public. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be the people like you and me, or is it going to be the venture capitalist douchebags that do it? If it's that side of the equation that does it, then we should just pack our bags right now because this is it's it's fucked from the get go. But if it's, you know, the the people who truly love this stuff, you know, and support it, you know, then then it'll be OK. So uh, we're, we're running out of time again. Um, so uh, two final questions for you. Sure. Uh, what's next? What are you working on next? So um, 
a few. So I'm working on. I just finished an article for Graham Hancock's website. Um, the but I'm working on two books right now. One of them is called. Uh, it's kind of a, a longer project. It's called Psychedelic Witch, and it's um, about. Uh, it's about my own practices with entheogens, my own weird witchy stuff. Uh, the one that I'm excited about that I'm writing right now that has my my focus is called The Mushroom Heretic and the Search for the Psychedelic Christ. And it's all about how you're familiar with the holy mushroom conspiracy theory. Uh, the mushroom vaguely. and Christian art thing. Uh, vaguely, vaguely. Well, it, 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 sure. It's uh, pretty much about, well, you know what? That was the right answer because you should know about this. <laughs> uh, my book is about how that idea is complete bunk. Right. I think I have a book I have yet to read that addresses that. I think it's called The Psychedelic Gospels. The Psychedelic Gospel. Don't even waste your time. Yeah. It's absolutely. In fact, the article that I wrote for Graham Hancock is debunking the, right. the book you just mentioned. And my mm -hmm. colleague, Chris Bennett, has an article on cannabis culture called Fungal uh, the, Psychedelic uh, the Fungal Paradoilia of the Psychedelic Gospels. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he... I mean, pound for pound shows where the Browns, that's who wrote Jerry and Julie Brown, where they're lying, where they're exaggerating and where they, and this is the part that really broke my heart, where they completely misrepresent the opinion of scholars who are still alive today. Like mm -hmm. my colleague went and he got in touch with those scholars and said, did you say this? And they looked, they're like, we didn't say that. And right. it's presented in the book as if they did. And mm -hmm. so- uh, the Psychedelic Gospels, and I don't mind saying this, is a work of lies, fiction, contrived conversations, a complete misunderstanding of how to do real history, and just a lot of bullshit. I think there's an issue with some of the scholarship like that, or and we'll put you know air quotes around scholarship. Um, it's not scholarship. Where, yeah, that it's these things are published with and people will read them and sort of eat them up but i think it's important to have researched information for people uh, because we're living in a i always refer to this as a um, uh, an epistemological nightmare uh right now and uh oh, you know, yeah. we, we we need we need academic honesty I think. yeah well we're living in a post-fact world right. that's problems right. we, like yeah. we're we're in post-fact land now yeah yeah so this is the, the reason i do this kind of level of research is because i don't want to live in a post-fact i want to hold on to science and integrity and beauty and art right. like i want to hold on to those things yeah for sure for sure absolutely all right well uh the final question is where can people find out more about you and your work sure um uh, set a date. We'll both eat mushrooms and eat on the, no, no, I'm kidding. Uh, no. Uh, so my Instagram is at psychedelic historian. My YouTube page is at psychedelic historian. My website is psychedelichistorian.com. And my other website that has the psychedelic library on it is sanctum.org. That's P S A N C T U M.org. Okay. And that's uh, sanctum psychedelia is my psychedelics education and uh, 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 harm reduction organization. So there we have our events and uh, articles and uh, there's a blog and all kinds of stuff and videos, okay. interviews. There's a, you'll be lost for hours on that website. Okay. Well, I'll post the uh, websites and links to the books and your social media on the, uh, in the show notes and on the YouTube video description uh, for people to uh, look. 
for more info. Well, um, Tom, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated speaking with you and uh, we'll have to speak again sometime because yes. we only covered, I think, part of the material that uh, uh, I'm interested in. I'm just getting in. warmed up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't even have my my you know, my gloves off yet. My shoes are still on, you know, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, but uh, yeah, if uh, when you're in, uh, if I'm in California, well, if when I am in California, if you're around, I'll shoot you an email. Sure. If you, you know, yeah. want to continue the conversation, if not, no big deal. Yeah, for sure. I'd appreciate that. Cool. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, yeah, thank I, you. I do appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Peace out all. All right. Goodbye. Wait, Bye. wait. Last thing. You free your mind by using your brain. Absolutely. True words that. <laughs> and that's a wrap on episode 19 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second, and your five-star ratings really do help a lot. If you have a minute to spare, consider sharing a positive review. And also, please consider subscribing if you haven't done so already. For those of you viewing this on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But all of that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast and my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.